It was many, many years ago that I stood behind probably this same uh, little lectern here, and as part of a sermon, uh, talked about oxymorons. Now, an oxymoron is a figure of speech or a phrase that combines two opposite or seemingly contradictory ideas, and often an oxymoron is just two words put together. Maybe the classic example of an oxymoron would be the expression bittersweet, right? Contradictory ideas, they don't seem to go together, but we combine them, bittersweet. Other examples would be a cruel kindness. Uh, there's the product icy hot. Maybe some of you use steel wool, right? Reliable Wi-Fi. These would all be examples of oxymorons. In fact, uh, there are some of us, maybe those especially health conscious among us, who had an oxymoronic breakfast even. It's possible that you had almond milk this morning along with grape nuts cereal. That would be an oxymoronic breakfast. And if you missed out on the breakfast, there's always lunch. You could have vegetarian meatballs for lunch, right? So I've been thinking about oxymorons again because of the parable that I was assigned to preach on this morning. It's a very popular parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that doesn't sound like an oxymoron to us probably, but certainly to Jesus' original hearers of the parable, those that first heard Jesus give the parable, those two words, good and Samaritan, did not go together, not at all. The Jews were the dominant majority group. The Samaritans, the minority group. And both of them disliked each other. That would be an understatement. They saw one another, both groups saw the other group as racially inferior, as religiously inferior. And they had reasons, they had their reasons for this. Jews saw Samaritans as perpetually unclean. Uh, the rabbis taught that to eat with a Samaritan, to eat with a Samaritan was equal to eating the flesh of pigs, which of course for Jews was not something that was accepted. Jesus, growing up, he would have known about the Samaritans, those Samaritans. Uh, when he was somewhere between the ages of 10 and 12, a group of Samaritans actually snuck into the temple in Jerusalem and they scattered human bones throughout the temple precincts. It was as if they were saying, it wasn't as if they were saying, they were saying, you Jews think that we are unclean, we will desecrate your most sacred spot. We will make that spot unclean. And I don't know that I mentioned it, but this actually took place during Passover. And we know from Luke chapter two that Jesus' family, it says Jesus' parents went every year to Jerusalem for the Passover. So Jesus, as a boy, would have experienced this tension, um, this animosity in a very, very 
real way. He would have been trained to keep his distance from the Samaritans. They were heretics. They were dangerous. Don't venture into their neighborhood is what he would have been taught. I've heard preachers talk about this before, and many of you probably have as well. You've known about the tension between Jews and Samaritans. And I've wondered, was it really that bad? Are we exaggerating things maybe just a bit? Well, our parable comes in Luke chapter 10. Just the chapter before, in Luke chapter 9, we read of an incident taking place between Jesus and his disciples and a Samaritan village. Jesus and his disciples actually venture into Samaritan territory, and they seek hospitality. They want to stay in a Samaritan village. And in Luke 9, we read that the Samaritans rebuffed them. They refused hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. And when James and John experienced this, they were so angry Certainly they believed it was righteous indignation. They asked Jesus this question, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? This last year, our daughter Alyssa served as a student missionary in Bolivia at a place called La Familia Feliz. She was a teacher and a house mother, along with another student missionary, to a home um, that housed eight girls ages 11 to 17. She taught and then, again, was like the house mother for them. This, uh, this location, La Familia Feliz, is not located in a big city. It's actually right on the edges of the Bolivian rainforest, and the house where Alyssa lived, along with this other SM and the girls, was right next to a river, and the house was not sealed well at all. It was shared by humans and by jungle creatures, various jungle creatures. Not an exhaustive list, but I'll go through some of them. Bats lived, lived in the room where Alyssa lived. She said that they did, bats do not smell very good, apparently. Um, but they helped with the insects, at least just a bit. There were bats, there were rats, mice, tarantulas, and other spiders in the house, um, toads and frogs, and again, the list could go on. You get, you get an idea of the setting. Several months after Alyssa had been there, another student missionary came from Southern, Southern Adventist University. It was her second night there, and she was staying in the same home with where Alyssa uh, was staying. And on that second night there in Bolivia, it was late, she was talking with her mom on the phone, and then she remembered that she'd left some clothes out on the clothesline, and she thought, I should, I should go and get those. She went outside and stepped off the path. Now, the dramatic version, the dramatic version would go something like this, you know, out of the darkness, there was a flash of fangs that sank into her flesh. The less dramatic version, but equally terrifying version, was that she was bitten by a large snake. She went rushing, understandably so, back into the home, 
screaming hysterically. I can't imagine what her mom was going through listening on the phone. A girl from the house, one of the older girls, was dispatched immediately to go get help, and then Alyssa and the other student missionary went out to look for the snake because there was a concern. Was this a poisonous snake or not? They needed to track down the snake. It wasn't very difficult to do. A large snake, certainly by our standards, Quickly, help arrived. Thankfully, help arrived in the form of a man with a flashlight in one hand and a machete in the other. And within moments, the head of the snake, along with the student missionary that had been bitten, they were in a vehicle being rushed some 20 minutes to town where there was a hospital. The SM was going there for treatment the head of the snake was going there for identification. Uh, The good news, it was some kind of constrictor, juvenile constrictor, probably an anaconda of some sort, not poisonous, and the girl was okay. While they were on their way to the hospital, though, back at La Familia Feliz, something else was happening. One of the longtime residents there said, look, a snake like this, a family member of the snake, maybe a mate or a parent, will come looking for it. So we have to destroy it. We have to burn it. I saw the video of the fire and the headless snake twisting and turning and writhing in the flames. Someone with a long stick had to keep pulling it back, pushing it back into the flames as it tried to slither away. I'm not a big fan of snakes, but watching the video, just watching the video was somehow disturbing disturbing, disturbing. It's uncomfortable seeing something burn. And what was it again that the disciples of Jesus said? I'll ask this question first. How much do you have to fear something? How much do you have to hate something? in order to say these words, the words of James and John. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? They were talking about a Samaritan village, but not the buildings, not the houses. They were talking about the people. How much do you have to hate? How much do you have to fear? to want people to be burned and to be so convinced that your perspective is shared by God that you want to call the fire down even from heaven. Snakes and Samaritans, let them burn. We spent a long time, I spent a long time on this background because 
It's only when we have this background clearly in mind, I think, that the parable carries its full weight. I already said it's found in Luke chapter 10, again, just a chapter after these words I quoted from James and John. And the story goes like this, quickly, the setting. There is a religious leader, a Jewish religious leader, who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's his question. And Jesus says, well, you're the expert. What does the scripture say? What does the law say? And the man says, well, the law says to love God with heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, that's the correct answer. Do this and you will live. But then the text says the man wanted to justify himself. So he asks a further sort of theological question. Um, Who is my neighbor? He asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And now verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. This is a well-known road, uh, goes out, exits from the eastern side of Jerusalem. It goes up along the Mount of Olives through Bethpage, Bethany, and then it drops some near, well, about 3,000 feet down to Jericho. It's a dangerous road uh, at certain times of the year, incredibly, incredibly hot, uh, rocky, barren, barren road. Dangerous, certainly dangerous. About 17 miles in total. And the man was going down uh, to Jericho, leaving Jerusalem, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and this would not have been out of the ordinary. We know from other writings that there were many priests who lived in Jericho. Uh, They would be on duty at the temple for two weeks at a time. They would do that a couple times of year. So they'd travel up to Jerusalem, serve their two weeks, head back home to Jericho. he was, uh, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. The text doesn't say why. Was he afraid of robbers? Was he afraid that he would become ritually impure? The text doesn't say. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Both of these men would have had reasons for passing on by. Again, the text doesn't specify. There will always be more reasons not to help than there are reasons to help. But a Samaritan, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine for cleansing and for soothing. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins. This would pay lodging depending on which 
uh, scholar you read, which commentary you read, these two coins would pay for either somewhere between four and eight weeks stay at the inn. Gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. If he wants to take snacks from the refrigerator, order room service, it's on me. Any extra expense, I will take care of it. And it's emphatic in the Greek. I, not the man, I will pay for it. And then Jesus asks this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, notice, he can't even say the word, Samaritan. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, and here are the hard words. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Some parables are hard to understand. This one isn't. Jesus gives us the point. He actually asks the man what the point was. The man answers correctly, and then Jesus affirms it. Do you want to enter into life Do you want to enter into life? Love God and love your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? Everyone. Someone who's racially different, someone who's religiously different, culturally different. Everyone is your neighbor. And the call is not to love your neighbor like love your neighbor, say yes, oh I agree, love the neighbor. No, the call is to be a neighbor even to those who hate you and even to those you may hate. Be a neighbor to those. The point is clear, and that's the problem. That's the problem. I don't have to talk long about this. I think we recognize our struggle to live this out. Oh, we recognize the struggle other people have to live it out. We probably also even recognize the struggle that we have to live this out. I have here in my notes something about watching the news. I don't know if anyone else has trouble watching the news. Whoever we are, anyone who is under the sound of my voice, that hears my voice today, if you watch the news, I would suspect that whoever we are, we see people on the news who look at the world differently than we do. And whoever we are, do we not feel righteous indignation? Our anger is justified, isn't it? And we find it hard to be a neighbor to those people who aren't like us and who don't 
like us. So I conclude now with two application suggestions. Recognizing what a challenge this is for us. A couple of suggestions that I think might help us, might help us to actually obey this parable, to be a neighbor, even to someone from a different neighborhood. And the suggestions come from the parable itself. And the first suggestion, the first application is simply this, is simply this, act on the compassion you feel. Act on the compassion you feel. In this parable, there's a a pattern that's set up. Uh, The man is beaten and left for dead. The priest comes, sees, passes by. The Levite comes, sees, passes by. And then the pattern is broken. The Samaritan comes, sees, and a new phrase, he took pity on the wounded man. The better translation is he was moved with compassion. And the Greek word here for compassion is actually the word for like your guts, your bowels. It was considered the seat of the emotions. He was touched. He felt compassion. If you study this word in the New Testament, you'll find that this word compassion is closely, closely connected with Jesus. Jesus is the one who feels compassion, who has compassion. It's a divine emotion. And when we feel the twinge of compassion, that's a God-given twinge. It was a number of years ago. I don't know how many years ago it was. It was on our campus here. There was a lecture, an outside person who came to our campus to, to lecture. I think it was sponsored, they were sponsored by the History and Philosophy Department. I went to hear one of the lectures. It was in Bowers Hall. I don't, like, I'm sorry, but I just don't remember the details except for this. They were talking about people who helped Jews during the Holocaust, people who hid Jews, who smuggled Jews to safety. And there's been research that has been done on these people, like why did you do this? When others didn't, why did you? And the research suggests that these people were not necessarily paragons of virtue. Their decision to help was often not a deliberate, carefully thought out process of response. Instead, it tended to be spontaneous, spur of the moment, initiated by the fact that they felt sorry for the Jews. One man, and this is now a famous line, I remembered it from the presentation and found the background actually online. Uh, One of the rescuers, and they would say, you know, I, I like, I helped, and then I realized, wow, I've really gotten myself into something here. But that initial uh, response of compassion then led to kind of commitment to continue to help. And this, uh, this famous line from one of the rescuers, he said, the hand of compassion was faster than the calculus of reason. We responded 
before we'd thought it all out. The hand of compassion was faster than the calculus of reason. Here's our problem. Here's my problem. We've learned to suppress that feeling of compassion, to ignore it even, because of its inconvenience. It was a preacher, I think it was Tony Campolo, many of you may remember or know that name. He was on a mission trip with his son, and they were walking through a a town, and a beggar came up to them, began to kind of follow them and and bother them. And uh, Tony, again, I think it was Tony Campolo, gave him kind of the brush off, and his son said to him, Dad, and then he had to explain, right, well, we can't start handing out money because pretty soon we'll be swamped. People will come from all over and asking us for money. And his son said, so? And then he said, well, by the time we get to our place, I won't have any money left in my pockets. And his son said, so? I realize that sometimes compassion is more than just handing out money. There are complicated issues here. But our problem is not that we love too extravagantly. Our problem is not that our compassion knows no bounds, that we have compassion too freely on other people. No, that's not our problem. Our problem is that we live in neighborhoods that are far too small. And the calculus of reason stops the hand of compassion. When you feel the twinge of compassion, that's from the Lord. And if you don't feel the twinge of compassion for someone, That's not an indication of how far they have fallen from the ideals of Jesus. That's an indication of how far we have fallen from the ideals of Jesus. The first suggestion, act on the compassion that God gives to you. And now, finally, the last suggestion. Recognize the wounded Jew. Recognize the wounded Jew. Imagine the priest. If passing that way, he'd looked and there was someone injured by the side of the road. And if he looked and saw, that's my child, would he have looked on that situation as like an inconvenience? Oh, I should probably help. Instead, he would have been so thankful that he had passed that way so that he could render aid, so that he could help. Our compassion increases in proportion to our connection. So I ask again, who is the wounded Jew in this parable? We focus a lot on the Samaritan. The Samaritan's the hero, right? He does the right thing. Who is the wounded Jew? And this was my discovery 
in preparing for this sermon. Others have probably seen it. I had never realized this before. And it came to me when I read verse 30, these words. Who's, the, who's, this, who's this man? It says, they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Do you know anyone else in the New Testament who was stripped, who was beaten, who was forsaken, and who was left for dead? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus tells a parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's a foreshadowing of his own experience. It happens on the same road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is the same road that Jesus took on his way to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. In the parable, the man begins the journey on foot and ends the journey on a borrowed donkey. Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, he began his journey on foot, and he, for his triumphal entry, concludes his journey on a borrowed donkey. And like the man in the parable, Jesus is stripped. He is beaten, he is wounded, he is abandoned, The priests don't help, they condemn him. And then the robbers, the thieves, Jesus is crucified between them. And when he's left for dead, it's not a Samaritan, but it's a member of the Sanhedrin and some women who come to tend to his broken body. They bind him, they care for him. Who is the wounded one by the side of the road? Do we recognize, do we recognize them? It's Jesus, it's always Jesus. He is the one who is hungry, he told us this himself. He is the one who is hungry, who is thirsty, who is the stranger, who needs clothes, who was in sick, who was sick and who was in prison. And Jesus said, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. You did for me. We're living in a time of fear and a time of hate. May God help us to see the face of Jesus even in the faces of our enemies. And then, moved by divine compassion, may we be a good Samaritan. Again, thank you for joining us this week. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and we're so glad you worshiped with us this Sabbath. Please let us know where you're joining us from. You can send us a message on our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on our church website. And we pray that you have a wonderful week and God's richest blessings go with you.